Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian and Anthony McDaniels bringing you yet another episode of the Wacky World of Energy. And I do apologize. I wanted to pull it up before we had this episode going, but we've got lots of stuff in the works. we got to get going. Someone did leave a YouTube comment. If you listened to this show and didn't know, we do put these on YouTube. Some visual aids, lots of the articles we talk about, and we like engaging with you. So thanks for engaging with us. Give us anything you want. Maybe it'll stimulate some conversation. Maybe it'll be featured in the next episode, but... That's enough for my end. Where do you want to start with the news today, Anthony? Oh, my, 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 what a wacky world. Wacky, wacky, wacky world. <laughs> I can't, we, we can't even fit man. it in, man. There's so many things coming out every week. And, you know, I just can't practically do more than once a week, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't want to make people have to listen to us more than once a week <laughs> to feel like that they're staying caught up on everything. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, we've got all kinds of stuff all over the board. We've got, you know, is Russia going to go into the energy of or is Europe going to go into the energy abyss because of Russia shutting them off? You know, I mean, we got banks out there saying that oil could be over $300. We got banks out there saying oil is going to $40. <laughs> wow. You know, I mean, it's yep. just, whoa, we got all kinds of stuff going on. We have stuff domestically, internationally. I mean, wow, 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 wow. Um, <laughs> so we're going to throw some of our own opinions in here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but their opinions based on observation of history, current events, and just generally facts as well. So anyway, we'll just get right on up to it. Um, Tavis, what's the first article we have up? I think it's a CNBC article here. Well, this first one, this is from CNBC. Russia is set to switch off the gas for work on a key pipeline in Germany fears the worst. Now, this was published July 5th. And this is something that's been in the works for years. Rare Petro was saying it. The previous administration was saying it. Many analysts around the world were saying it. They said, what the hell are you doing giving Russia all this power with these pipelines? Because who's to say they may not turn it off? Here we've got the key points at the top of the article. Russia is poised to temporarily shut down the European Union's single biggest piece of gas import infrastructure, stoking fears of a delayed and or partial return of gas supplies. Some fear the Kremlin could use planned maintenance works to turn off the taps for good. If it doesn't come back after maintenance because President Putin plays games or wants to hit Europe while it hurts, then the plan to fill up gas storage by the end of the summer will probably not work. And that holds heavy implications because people are already getting worried about this winter. But what you need to know is between July 11th and July 21st, Russia said, hey, we're going to have to turn this off, pretty much restrict all flows because we've got maintenance work to do. And, and it's on their see, uh, Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Yeah, Nord Stream 1. So there's already yeah. plenty of stuff going on with Nord Stream 2 that was tough to get into effect. Uh, there was even some contention on Germany's part, I believe. But Nord Stream 1 has existed for some time. And like the uh, CNBC article mentioned, is one of the biggest pieces of gas delivery infrastructure. And I got to be honest, Anthony, I think Russia's probably going to go, oops, maintenance is going to take longer than we expected. We don't know when it will be back up. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see what happens here. Um, expect the unexpected though. I think so many people are looking for that to be what they're going to do, which I would agree mm-hmm. as well with the narrative of the article, with what you just said. That's my default belief is that they're probably going to use this to shut off gas. Um, but a part of me says, you know, I just... I would be shocked if they do it when everybody's sitting there puckered up waiting for it. (laughs) I get the sense that maybe, just maybe, the maintenance goes as planned Mm. and there is not a huge 
hitch in it, maybe a couple of days. Um, and the gas keeps going. And then in the ensuing weeks after that, then maybe we have a problem. So maybe let Europe have this one, deliver the gas, don't do what's expected, and maybe play by the rules a bit? It's very possible that Russia just doesn't do what everybody's expecting them to do. Uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. Um, again, not really saying that that's what I believe will happen, but I also know that uh, a little bit of misdirection is quite strategically advantaged. To It's a quite strategic advantage for those who are imposing their will, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. anyway, uh, we'll just have to wait and see uh, where that goes. I mean, the biggest concern right now in the summer is that what they're trying to do is they're trying to fill up their gas storage for the winter, right? Yep. So if there's reductions or unplanned outages or extended outages, um, then yeah, I mean, you could have a whole deal going on there where mm -hmm. you just... They're scrambling, right? I mean, they could end up scrambling for uh, supplies of gas and all this other stuff. So with that, um, let's go on to the, the next article here. We've got what is going on right now. <clears throat> A little bit more overseas information. China is taking advantage of Western sanctions on Russia. <laughs> wow, big surprise, right? <laughs> this is an oil price article on July 5th of 2022. Um so the bullets here are, though oil prices are on the rise across the globe, China is seeing prices fall. <gasps> what? <laughs> Western sanctions against worse. Russia have left Moscow willing to unload its crude at mind-bending discounts. <laughs> China is taking advantage of the current geopolitical climate, buying up as much Russian oil as it can. So getting into the article a little bit here. Um, we have now China has become an even bigger buyer of oil from the world's biggest exporter. Incident incidentally, the subject of not just U.S. but European Union sanctions too. And while oil prices <clears throat> for most of the world are rising, for China, they are falling. <laughs> Bloomberg reported this week that Iran has had to cut prices of its already discounted crude and be able to compete wow. with Russian crude sent for China. You know, I think it was a couple weeks ago we did a recording and some analysts had come out there and said, no, oh, I don't know if Russia can find a home for all of the oil they were sending to Europe. <laughs> uh, yeah, buddy, if it's on enough sale, yeah, they'll find a home for every single freaking barrel to the point that now you got Iran over there trying to say, oh, man, I want a home for my barrels too. Let's cut the prices, right? Okay, so this might hint at a possibility of discord within OPEC Plus, but then again, it will take a while for such discord to manifest itself. This is just in the article here, you know. Um, the main buyers of both Iranian and Russian crude are private refiners in China, okay? The so-called teapots, unlike the state-owned majors who need to tread carefully around sanctions and who have fuel export quotas, Teapots are oriented towards supplying the domestic market. I want everybody to think about that right now. So you've got the private refiners in China that are oriented towards supplying the domestic market in China with fuel, diesels, gasoline, mm -hmm. stuff like this. Look, the Chinese government here, first of all, right, these guys watch and control everything within their country, and they try to do it in a lot of the rest of the world too, right? At least influence, yeah, right? right? If not, if not, yeah, if not out, do you really think 
they give a damn that their private refiners are buying stuff in the face of sanctions. All it lets them do is say, oh, those are private refiners. Sorry, guys. I mean, sorry that we, I mean, the state-owned ones, the private refiners are supplying them domestically. They're going to buy all that stuff cheap. The Chinese are going to turn a blind eye to their private refiners, non-government refiners, getting all this sanctioned crude. Why? Because it benefits them internally. It's not that complicated, everybody. So they're going to continue to do it. They've been doing it. And in all honesty, they're probably doing more than we're even rare of. Okay? They're probably taking even more than, than is being reported. Right? These are just bits and pieces that people are putting together by watching trends and putting the dots together, everybody. So, you know, even before this article continues, even before Russia joined the sanctions party, however, China was gobbling up Iranian and Venezuelan barrels barrels that pretty much nobody else wanted. Beijing may very well be uh, secretly celebrating the sanctions on Russia as they give the country access to a lot more crude. (laughs) I wouldn't even say it's secret at this point. (laughs) Oh, so I'm just going to kind of scoot to the bottom-ish part of the article here. So, um, the news broke earlier this month by Reuters that Saudi Arabia and the UAE may, may not have as much spare capacity as estimated by agencies such as the EIA and the IEA. It made substantial waves in the oil market as it deepened fears that oil supply is about to rise, um, is not about to rise meaningfully anytime soon. Oil prices continued rising, albeit tamed by growth fears of a global recession making fuels even more expensive for drivers in Europe and North America. Not China, though. Fuel prices in China are currently on the decline after several months of increases. Yet compared to the increases in the U.S. and the EU fuel prices, China's price increase is quite insignificant. It might have something to do with those sanctioned barrels coming from Venezuela, Iran, and Russia. You mean our sanctions are giving China an enormous subsidy for discounted energy? Wow, and it's almost as if this increased supply driving prices down. I wonder if we could witness that anywhere else. Oh my gosh. It's just really absurd to think about this because we've got Jinping and Putin holding hands frolicking through fields of pumps (laughs) and batteries as far as the eye can see, knowing that very soon the people saying, you can't be doing that, you're evil, you're polluting the planet. Are going to be yeah. the same people who go, hey man, I'm in a bad spot. I really need some energy. Think you could spot me some? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, all these Western nations are getting getting a little bit, a little bit all hussied up that they're paying so much for the energy now. Mm-hmm. I guess those sanctions are sort of backfiring a little bit. It appears that this is be the case we talked about this months ago mm-hmm. before like some of this more documentation came out i was like oh look what will it happen russia found a home for their crude on discount big surprise wow who'd have thought that would happen all right so we have a next article up tavis i'll let you kind of tee this off and start going through it the g7 has paved the way for what has the g7 paved the way for here Well, according to oil price, they're paving the way for increased oil and gas spending. Now, this was an article released on the 29th of June. Bullets at the top. Underinvestment in oil and gas in the past few years is seen as one of the main reasons for the current imbalance between supply and demand. G7 nations have acknowledged the need for increased investment in foreign gas projects. Big oil CEOs are calling for stability and consistency in governmental policies in order to boost investment. And this is even kind of strange to read this morning because the day of our recording, 
the secretary of OPEC, his, or secretary general of OPEC just passed away, and he was big in the past year saying, hey, everybody, we've got chronic underinvestment in these projects. We've got chronic undersupply of oil. We need to sort this out. But those in the West, between Western Europe and even just the United States, didn't listen. And look how it's panning out. <laughs> if we dive a little bit deeper into this article, Despite repeated commitments to emission reduction and a switch to cleaner energy sources on the part of governments in Europe and North America, oil investment is about to start growing again. The clearest sign was the G7 meeting this week, where the members of the Rich Club negotiated a delay in the complete halt of investments in fossil fuels in third countries as their own countries grapple with energy shortages that have no recent precedent. And it's really strange to see this after uh, those Paris Climate Accord agreements. I mean, I, I have very vivid memories from like 2017 through like 2019, all of these crazy commitments. And just a few years later, we're seeing the exact opposite. Oops, we bit off more than we can chew. We do not have the projects that we need to supply our nations. And well, I, I guess it's better they realize this sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, the thing of it is for them to dig out of their hole and get supplies back online to the level that they need them, it's going to, well, it doesn't just happen overnight, okay? It's not going to be like turning a faucet on and off. Mm -hmm. Look, you know, you got the G7 out there. At least they're starting to wake up a little bit, maybe. Oh, we still need a lot of hydrocarbons to fuel our life. Yeah, big freaking surprise. You know, anybody could have told you that. But now you're like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, the other thing the G7 is doing that came out is they actually came out and officially said that they are going to implement some sort of a, a price cap mechanism on Russian crude. Isn't yeah, that correct? That's the idea. I mean, I think it's still in the drawing room, still in the works. But it seems as if that is the solution that, well, they're probably going to go with, despite us going, no. Whether it's the United States or you guys or all of us together doing it, this is a terrible idea, but it's one that everyone finds to be very popular right now. Mm, yeah, we'll pick that back up in a second here. So we have a really good article here from um, July 5th on a oil price article here. It says in the title, WTI drops below $100 as recession fears grow. So for those of you not keeping up, um, and that's fine. If not, that's part of the reason we do this show. Within the last week or two, we have JP Morgan coming out and basically saying, <laughs> if Russia retaliates and just shuts their crude off to the Western world, oil could go to $300 plus a barrel. $300 plus a barrel. And then you got analysts at Citibank saying that, oh, no, if there's a recession, oil could go to 40 bucks. Mm, skeptical. You know? And so I just... Here's the thing. I mean, even some people that we follow and read, you know, are talking about, oh, yeah, you know, there's going to be demand destruction. You know, there's going to be less oil demand. You know, it's going to drive down the price. Okay. A couple of points to make here. It's somewhat of a circular argument to say that a recession is going to be ensued largely because of high energy prices. Um because there's concern of lack of supply versus demand, right? To take that same, that's the reason you're worried what a large contributor for a recession kicking off is high energy prices. And so what, you think that that's gonna drive energy prices down? What are you smoking? 
I, that's, I would, that's a circular that. argument. If the reason for the recession is largely rooted in high energy prices to begin with, the solution to that is not going to be lower energy prices. Even if it does drop, it won't be long term because the root of the problem is lack of supply. And if you want to sit here and tell me that, well, but if demand goes down, yeah, unless supply drops more, why do you think we are, all these developed nations are releasing strategic reserves and our crude inventories are barely hanging out flat? Mm-hmm. How do you think that we can barely, we can't even be on the bottom end of five-year inventory trends for gasolines and diesels, even missing a million barrels a day of refining capacity? How the heck do you go from, oh, you know what? We might have a recession because energy is getting really expensive to, oh, yeah, if we have a recession from energy being expensive, from a lack of supply of energy, then energy prices will go down. Yeah. Are you nuts? Now, let let me clarify here. A large market sell-off can definitely bring down prices of everything, including oil and gas no matter what the fundamentals say. And that can happen for a period of time, okay? So that I am not saying that oil prices can't drop. Mm -hmm. What I am saying is if you honestly believe that oil prices would go down to say 40 or $50 and what, stay there, average 60 bucks for the next five years, what are you looking at? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, they definitely can go down. But let me tell you right now, there's another thing that people aren't discussing more, and I just wish unprogram your freaking brain. You keep talking about oil prices as some sort of homogeneous freaking global benchmark. Wake up. It is not anymore. That's why China's getting it at $40 off. Hello, hello, hello. Their prices are going down. Oil is being sold at $70. Hello, hello, hello. Mm-hmm. It's happening right now. The oil price already is down on the other side of the planet. It's already down. And the real sad thing is that because of the geopolitical climate in general, mixed with the local political climate in the United States, $100 some oil isn't enough over here for us to really get busy and drill, 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 drill. It's not happening. So where is my supply coming from? Anybody out there that wants to tell me that oil is going to drop to 50, 60 bucks and stay there for five years, Hmm. then you explain to me how is it going to account for the trillions of dollars that were printed globally? Because guess what? In 2019, the globe produced and consumed around 100 million barrels a day. In 2021, the same. So if you doubled or tripled the money supply on the planet without ensuing the same thing on capability of production of commodities like oil, then do you think $100 oil is a high price now? Do you really think that? I would like to have talked to you in 2004 when oil was at 40 and you looked in the rearview mirror and said, oh man, it's really high. Oh, is it? But the Federal Reserve was increasing or decreasing interest rates on the back end of the dot-com bubble. Now, right now what we have is we have a tightening. That's true. They are increasing interest rates, right? But we also have yielding curve inversions and we have all these currency games and we have different price benchmarks based on what currency system or what hemisphere of currency system you want to adhere to. So the point I make is that you see articles coming out here saying oil is going to go to 40, 50 bucks, 60 bucks. That's where it should be 70 at the most. Um, And then you have articles saying it could go to 300 and something. Look, it's 
there is a couple of macro things that have been happening for the better part of two two years now, certainly over a year. One, energy demand has stayed where it was from before COVID. Two, there is not the exploration capex nor the drilling rig count compared to the last time that oil prices was triple digits in US dollars. Three, countries have been draining their strategic reserves to fill the gap. Four, we still have gasoline and diesel inventories and distillate inventories not even able to stay under the five-year low, even with a million barrels a day of U.S. refining capacity offline since 2019. The fundamentals are the fundamentals. The markets can do some crazy things, and I expect a lot of volatility. I agree with you entirely. This is totally circumstantial. If I had woken up and gas went from three thirty to seven dollars a gallon overnight, yeah, I can see quite a bit of demand being pulled right off the table. But like you said, all of those uh, factors you just mentioned have played into this over a long period of time. And we just read an article where Europe says, "Hey, we don't have the gas supplies for winter, and we're afraid of getting them." I'm with you. I don't really see a sixty-dollar barrel right around the corner. Yeah, I mean. We have this article from July 5th with oil prices. One of those really nice articles where they put in like a lot of summaries from articles they had throughout that week. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so we see a rig count graph in here. Uh, The rig count for the U.S. was over a thousand rigs when oil price was 70. It's not even 800 rigs right now. The Permian Basin was almost 500 rigs and around end of 2018, it's still not back to where it was. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now the wells are a little bit better. You do have more production capacity per well as they've gotten these vintages better, but it doesn't change the fact that I am not seeing anything in the macro on CapEx spending rates, nor on rig rates, numbers, how much is running that tells me that we're yet to the point where we're going to turn production and some, you know, north. And even if it were to that point now, with extra productivity per well. You're still waiting two years, okay, before you're gonna see and feel that at a macro level. So, I mean, that you just can't get away from that. So, you know, they had some articles that they summarized in there that, hey, JP Morgan wars of $380 oil after price cap. <laughs> you know, and uh, then we have just all kinds of stuff, you know. Oh, here's another one. India slaps windfall tax on fuel exports. Oh, yeah. I don't see yeah, that, that one kind of almost flew under the radar. But that one, I'm going to tell you, everybody, India has also been very um, uh, wanting to buy this Russian crude, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and India, I believe India is part of that. That's the I in the BRICS countries, right? Sure is. And we had a couple of months, uh, weeks, maybe a month now, where there was an article that uh, Putin was proposing a, a refining cartel within the BRICS organizations, right? I think yeah. so. I think so. He's looking to mm. introduce a, a sort of new, yeah, so refining what, cartel. Yeah, what basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, India is going to slap windfall tax on fuel exports. Mm-hmm. So they're going to get all this cheap Russian crude. That's what they're doing right now. They're going to make all these fuels like diesels and gasolines and stuff like this. Um, 
We're still going to pay if we need to get any imports of, say, distillates and diesel fuels from India, which we currently do. Um, that's going to become more expensive. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that will become expensive, more expensive in its own right, aside from commodity prices, because just, the governments are going more. I'm going to take care of ourselves. We're going to take care of ourselves. Mexico is basically going to stop exporting oil by the end of the year mm -hmm. or sometime next year. Um, we've got all these different countries around the world saying, you know, we're going to basically repatriate all of our, you know, we're, we're going to take care of our energy supplies domestically. Right. And, and these tariffs on fuel exports, that doesn't hurt China guys. That doesn't hurt Russia. That hurts us. Okay. Cause we haven't built a new refiner, an actual refiner in almost 50 years. We just losing capacity because regulations and things break and it's too hard to get them fixed and back online and then some wanted to convert to biofuels and this and that and all this stuff the point is a country like india says we're going to slap a wind, windfall tax profit tax on on exports of fuel it's basically it's look it's basically india is saying to the united states there's a tariff on fuel mm -hmm. for you and it but they're not calling it a tariff. They're calling it a windfall tax on fuel exports. China doesn't need the fuel exports nearly as much as we do because they've been aggressively adding refining capacity on their borders and in their harbors where we can't seem to figure out how to build anything new of scale for half a century. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so stuff like that, you know, this kind of stuff that we, these subtle things we try to watch over here and we try to talk about, and we try to share with our audience. These are the little dots that you put together that make you seem smarter than you are. And you could miss a connection here and there, but let me tell you something. We did this a couple of weeks ago. We saw an article that Putin wanted to do, uh, potentially propose the BRICS countries have a, a refining cartel. And now you see that India is going to slap windfall t tax on fuel exports. Mm -hmm. Fuel exports aren't as important for China because they have no problem building refineries. Okay. There's no problem for Russia because Russia's just selling them the crude, right? Mm -hmm. And this export, it's, it's a windfall tax on fuel exports. It's not going to hurt India domestically either. Well, parts of India, because really unique to this situation, India is a little bit different. They have some government industry and some private industry. It's not totally private or totally nationalized. So India's state-run refiners were really struggling to compete with the private companies who were ignoring the sanctions, which is, well, an interesting case study to look at because you've got government inefficiencies and listening to these sanctions and then private industry. Private industry is doing way better and just absolutely excelling. So in order to level the playing field oh, his government sort of imposes this tax so that it, that it has the same ultimate effect doesn't it companies. it has yeah. the same ultimate effect mm -hmm. it's going to hurt the united states a whole yep. lot more than it's going to hurt india or okay. russia or china and that's mm -hmm. a fact when you tell private indian refiners that you can't export fuels in large amounts without having a windfall tax what is that going to do it's going to make it cost more for us to get their stuff yep it's not going to hurt China. It's not going to hurt Russia. And it's not really going to hurt India domestically other than hurting their private refining businesses. And then this sounds almost like a mere pseudo land of what we just talked about with China, with the state-run companies that are following sanctions. Pretty and then the, the, the privately run refiners that, that aren't. Mm -hmm. But look, I don't care how you slice it. 
if the United States wants to dig us and NATO out of this debacle, then we need to lead the way with more energy production. We can show all those boys in Europe how to get plenty of gas. This is how you drill a horizontal well, everybody. This is how you get all that gas from underneath Poland and whatnot. We can help them in that manner. Think we'll see some strategic partnerships in the near future? Or are we still? I certainly hope so. I would really like to go over there. If we're going to help Europe, you know, let's teach them how to fish. All right, this is how you can make your own energy. You got the stuff. It's in the it's in the ground. We have the basin maps. We have the technology. We have the know how. Let's go show you how to catch your own fish. Get your own gas. Stop being so overly reliant on everybody else. What's wrong with you? Have the resources right here. You know, and I think you'd rather do that over the next 5, 10, 20 years than just switch on the coal fire if you're so concerned <laughs> about emissions, especially yeah. that lignite crap out of Germany, right? Best solution right now, huh? Well, it, one of the biggest obstacles is going to be navigating sort of federal policy, political policies, but at least here in the United States, it does look like that landscape is starting to change. Yeah, yeah. So we have a... So we're going to talk about a couple of them here. So I have up a, uh, so a couple of LinkedIn posts. One is Energy Strong. This is probably the biggest domestic news that we've had. Tavis, go ahead and what's that? This is the post from Energy Strong where they put great news and uh, quote an NBC article they linked. The Supreme Court on Thursday, which was, this is about a week ago, curbed the Environmental Protection Agency's options for limiting greenhouse gas emissions from existing power plants one of the most important environmental decisions in years. In a setback for the Biden administration's efforts for combating climate change, the court said the EPA does not have broad authority to shift the nation's energy production away from coal-burning power plants towards cleaner sources, including solar and wind. And if you missed a lot of this in the finer details, just know that the Supreme Court basically said the EPA was given a lot of sweeping power to do really whatever they wanted, and in order to check that power, they said, no, you're going to have to start running these things through Congress. We believe you guys are doing, fighting the good fight, doing the good work, but you can't act as autonomously as you have been. And eh, I got to say, I agree. Yeah, I mean, a really good summary of this. We've talked about this guy's post before. Doug Sheridan. Um, you want to take this one, Tavis, or do you want me to do it? Sure, I'll go for it. So right. another LinkedIn post, like he said, Doug Sheridan from also the end of last week, where he says, the Wall Street Journal editorial board writes, the Supreme Court has finally answered the question as to whether the Environmental Protection Agency could invoke an obscure statutory provision to re-engineer the nation's electric grid. Prior to the 2015 Obama admin plan, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency had used the provision only a handful of times to regulate pollutants from discrete sources. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts relied on the court's major questions doctrine to halt the overreach by the EPA. The doctrine, both reasonably and necessarily, requires courts to look with skepticism would agencies claim in a long extant statute an unheralded power, representing a transformative expansion in its power, just what the Obama EPA did. He's yeah. great at summarizing these up with takes, and he has yeah. our take number one. America is a nation of laws. So if we're going to upend our economy for the sake of reducing carbon emissions by 2050, 2100, or whenever, it shouldn't be by executive fiat or regulatory cramdown. 
There's not an American alive who's unaware of the issues related to carbon emissions. So let them vote in politicians they believe will enact the right laws to address the issue, whatever they may be. Our take number two, for our part, we'd be open to considering a public referendum on replacing the current slate of green subsidies, mandates, political favoritism, and debt and demonization of incumbent energy sources and providers with a modest and transparent carbon tax with proceeds returned to Americans in the form of dividend payments. Love it. Wraps everything up. We've really looked at, I'd say, since probably the Obama administration with respect to the environment and two nice little points. Let's give the people the power. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guy does amazing summaries. Um, we read a lot over here. We follow a lot of stuff. But it's really good stuff, you know, to summarize this stuff, you know, and again, and here's another episode, you know, and maybe I'm going to try and make this more of a habit, but for everybody out there, I don't care what your belief is. The fact is you use hydrocarbons, period. You use them every day. The only question is where are you going to get them from and how are you going to go about getting them? That's the question. That's the question you need to worry about answering. It isn't about... Oh, you know, we're going to go green. We're going to get an oil barrel oil is used for over 6,000 different things. Everything you touch and interact with is oil. Okay. It's all hydrocarbon. The question is not anything other than where you're going to get them from and how you want to get them. So at some point in the distant future, when we can maybe just pull methane out of one of the gas planets, oceans. Great. Point is. Better that everybody just wake up and realize you need these hydrocarbon sources from the ground. It's the most abundant place currently and, in all honesty, for energy harvesting, the least footprint on the environment by a long shot. It's a whole lot less of a footprint to have a horizontal well pad than a strip mine. I can promise you that. Mm -hmm. So that's reality, right? The sooner the more people wake up to that fact that they are still using this stuff and now it's a decision of where am I going to get them and how am I going to get them. You want energy security? Make more of your own energy. You want things that are clean for the environment? Why don't you choose things that have less of a footprint? Worried about emissions? Fine. Get better tailpipes. I'm serious. You know what? There's a lot of things that you can do to capture carbon. There's a lot of things that you can do to take care of putting more molecules to work and wasting less. But to go down the pathway of, oh, we just don't want this whole source of energy because it's somehow bad. What are you talking about using it all the time? Unless you start deciding just not to use everything in modern life, and I do mean everything, in mass, just volunteer like, yeah, you know what? I don't like a warm house. You know what? I don't like nice clothes. Uh, you know what? I don't want food that I could just go to a grocery store and find off. The, you know, I would like to just farm. I would like to subsistence live in a shack. All right. That's yeah, you know what? You can pursue. And if you want to do it, great. But I guarantee you the vast majority of people who live in these G7 countries don't want to sign up for that mm -mm. and neither do their leaders <laughs> okay they don't want to live that way and so that's what that's what it is right so whether oil price is going to be forty dollars or three hundred and forty dollars who knows we do believe it's probably going to trend higher because the root of the problem is lack of energy supplies to the point that it's less than it appears to be less than what demand is even if demand is dropping we need oil and gas we need hydrocarbons the most abundant place to get them from is in the ground. So unless the price of getting hydrocarbons out of the ground exceeds the price of manufacturing them synthetically, then you're probably going to continue getting a lot of them out of the ground to maintain your style of life. And that's just what it is. 
So with that, I guess we can probably tie this one up, Tavis. Sounds good to me. And Anthony said it before, Alex Epstein, another creator in the space we really like, sort of turned into a blind religion where people just accept, ah, oil bad, green good, the environment destroyed. Maybe it's not the case. I mean, even the Supreme Court's looking to check some of these powers, ask some questions. You should be asking the questions too. We do our best to find a vast breadth of not only topics, but opinions from both sides so that you can have all the information and think for yourself. We invite you to continue doing that by subscribing to this podcast, fracking the follow button on whatever platform you listen to, and also following us on LinkedIn. We put out lots of content, and we like doing it for you. So we will see you back here this time next week. This has been Tavis Killian and Anthony McDaniels with Rare Petro. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Thanks, Tavis. 